if you repeat results, you are in the business that is diagonally opposite to innovation. You know, I've heard people say it's all about execution. Blackberry was executing really well. Trouble is, the world changed while they were busy executing. The most powerful catalyst for getting people into the right frame of mind to do something different and to innovate is actually the sharing of stories. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. For this episode, we'll be talking about leading and managing innovation. Among the topics we'll discuss are whether to view innovation as a top-down or bottom-up function, why innovation measurement is a mirage, and why places like Google X believe that rewarding failure is a way to fuel future successes. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Taylor Ryan. Taylor is the hey. Hey, hey, welcome. I jumped right in. I got so excited. (laughs) Taylor is the CMO of Valuer.ai, which helps corporations, accelerators, and investors find high-potential startups that specifically fit the corporation's strategic innovation requirements. In order to achieve this, Valuer has developed a platform that uses crowdsourcing and artificial intelligence to detect, predict, evaluate, and select startups that are particularly relevant to large companies. Welcome to the podcast, Taylor. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here as I jumped in earlier. It's uh, it's a topic that's very close to me, obviously, and uh, I'm excited to jump in and, and mix it up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks also for joining us from uh, from from Denmark. We'll get into, get into that a little more later, I'm sure. Um, but let's start off with giving listeners some background on Valuer, just so they get a sense of your perspective. Beyond what I mentioned in the introduction, what would you add about Valuer's role in the world? Sure. Valuer works as a discovery mechanism for corporations that want to find new startups to partner with, collaborate, and potentially acquire. The idea is that the old mechanisms of sending out a few startup analysts to big, crazy conferences or a few pitch events and seeing what they come up with hasn't really proven itself to be the most viable way of really putting numbers against what is a really unknown quantity when dealing with startups. So we're kind of the idea of nixing uh, the startup analysts and putting in a lot more validation in terms of machine learning that gives you some very high levels of confidence in terms of, is this startup a viable quantity? Is this going to be a good investment or a good partnership? Okay, got it. And I mentioned you're in Denmark earlier. Are you working with uh, with companies that are strictly there? Are you working with companies throughout the world? Yeah, we're international. So we have partners all over the world. We have a few clients in the United States. A lot of our clients are based in Europe. We're a relatively young company. We've only been around for a couple of years. Uh, we have some interesting developments happening in the uh, the southern hemisphere as well as the east, which is also a lot of fun. It's it's very different. So. Yeah, we're we're very international, and uh, I, I guess so am I. I'm originally from the the Washington D.C. metropolitan area, uh, but I found myself in Denmark uh, about three years ago, and yeah, I love it out here. Very nice. Well, we're in the in the shadow of the nation's capital, out in Fairfax. Uh, so we look forward to having you back sometime and into the offices, and maybe we can do another another episode from our studio here in Fairfax. Uh, I'd love to. I, I actually went to George Mason, so uh, right down the road. Oh, I, nice. I know exactly where you guys are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before we dive into leading and managing innovation, 
Let me just ask about artificial intelligence and machine learning in general. There's a perception in some corners that only the Apples, Amazons, Googles, and Facebooks of the world have the resources it takes to be working with those technologies or, or tool sets. Does your experience tell you something different? Uh, there's a hilarious, I don't know if it's hilarious, but a fun joke that I always love hearing and it's shared amongst a lot of folks that are in the machine learning and big data space. But the idea is that AI exists within PowerPoint and machine learning exists within Python. The concept is that there is no real AI as it would be really defined as an artificial intelligent machine that is able to make decisions like a human being. It doesn't exist. And I think we're a lot further out than maybe somebody like Elon Musk would have you believe. You can't take IBM's Watson and just redirect it to whatever type of data set that you want. There's so much that goes into it in terms of being able to set weights in which fields are more relevant to uh, whatever the outcomes are that you're trying to elicit. There are so many fine details that are kind of misunderstood in general in terms of how do you take a data set, apply some R to it, some reasoning, and then have an output that you can actually then say, yes, this is correct, or this was the desired outcome. There's so many steps that are missing that I think a lot of folks maybe either avoid talking about it or avoid approaching it because it seems like this mysticism of, of I don't know, a future generation. But in terms of AI being a real thing, I, I, I always try to gravitate towards using the, the phrase machine learning as, as I think it's a bit more accurate. Yeah. So, so let's dive into leading and managing innovation, the topic for this episode. Mindset is something that we've talked about on a number of episodes recently of the Innovation Engine for those that may just be thinking about the best way to ensure people at all levels of their organization think in innovative ways, do you think that requires a top-down or a bottom-up approach? Yeah, I was actually having this conversation uh, on Sunday night because uh, <laughs> I don't have a life, but um, <laughs> I was at a dinner party with a, a bunch of people from uh, some international companies and a, a guy that had stepped out from the United States and was making kind of a roadshow out of the uh, uh, the European areas that that he was uh, speaking to in the book. But in any event, it's one of those it's one of those really interesting things that I think you're finding that every company is very different and every department within every company is is also a little different. And what works in one cannot be applied to all. So I think you have a lot of people that uh, tend to express generalities in terms of corporates are slow. Well, yeah, of course they are. There's, there's a lot more at stake and any decision that's made needs to go underneath a microscope. Uh, but there's also some tendencies to say, we don't want to do things a different way because the way that we've always done it has always worked. And I think some of the latter of that is really up for debate. And we're finding as we're partnering with more and more and more folks, as we're getting more clients, I think a lot of people have an amorous perspective, this golden age of these Fortune 500 companies that seem to be doing everything right and just printing money. It's starting to kind of take shape that the future doesn't look like that. Those that are not innovating, those that are not taking risks, those that are not changing are due to essentially become irrelevant in the next number of years. It's not a matter of if, it's a win. Yeah. And so there are different schools of thought about where to invest if you're looking to drive innovation. 
from innovation labs to collaboration with customers or co-innovation to working with innovation consultants, many of which have appeared on, on the Innovation Engine podcast as guests. So I'm sure there's no one specific answer around what's going to be best for everyone. But what would you say are some of the pros and cons of each of these approaches? Sure. I, I'd love to jump kind of into the last question as well, because I, I feel like I half answered, but sure. um, for a couple of things. So there, the, the concept of a top-down versus a bottom-up approach. Of course, leadership needs to be vocal in that, hey, we need to do something different here. Otherwise, we see you know the 30,000-foot view or the next 10 years as uh, let's just call it tough sledding, you know? So I think that needs to come from leadership and in terms of ingraining the flexibility within either, uh, you know, an innovation lab or within departments in general, that also comes from middle managers as well as those that are uh, up at the very top to say, hey, it's okay to make these mistakes. It's all right to mess up. But you also need to look for that type of talent, that intrapreneurship that comes from the youngest people, the people that are brand new. It's okay to step up if you have a great idea and you've thought it through more than just, I had an idea once. You know, I think giving something in the way of like real insights and backing up your claims with real data to show, hey, it worked over here or this concept has legs because X, Y, and Z. And so I think it's a full spectrum, not just top and bottom. But as for the the second question that that you had just jumped into, sorry, remind me again, we were talking about uh, uh, the different schools to invest? Yes, yes. So different schools have thought about where to invest from innovation labs to collaboration with customers to, to innovation consultants. Gotcha. I love this one. So there's so many things to unpack here. First, I would say in terms of innovation labs, a lot of the clients that we have the most success with are doing innovation externally. Of course, they need to be able to find out internally what's happening, what's wrong. But I do genuinely believe that it is the job of the internal folks to basically give out, hey, this is this is what has been plaguing us for the last six years or six months, doesn't matter. And it's the innovation department to say, we understand your issues. Here's what we can apply to it to change that. Now, in terms of collaboration, I do find that startups seem to give a bit more value just because they're already focused in on the problems that they're solving. So, for instance, uh, with one of our, our customers, uh, Urstad, they're, they're a power company, think like a, a big electric company. And they're starting to discover that, wow, these folks that are doing blockchain over here seem to have the right idea in terms of applying what would be wasted power or unused power, not during the peak hours on a power grid. Why don't we transplant or save that energy in order to not necessarily have to bill our customers at the most peak times or vice versa? Who knows? But there's a million different ways that your customers could potentially benefit from using something in the way of startups. And I think the last part is the innovation consultant side. Uh, Now, I'm sure I'm going to catch a lot of heat for this, but I I do see this general trend of the snake oil salesman that decided they didn't want to sell cars anymore. Uh, They didn't want to be a a personal trainer. So they decided, I'm going to get into corporate innovation. Uh, And some people can talk in such general terms that you don't actually get any value from it. I think you need to find consultancies that are able to present solutions and then also implement those solutions and more or less carry you through that. Uh, I think just walking in and saying, that's not right, that doesn't work, this is a problem, 
here's my bill. Uh, I'll take, uh, I'll take cash as well. If you got it, <laughs> I think there's a difference between the two. Uh, and I've certainly seen my fair share of, of, uh, those on both sides. So I don't know. I think the best kind of comes out in the wash. Um, but yeah, a lot to unpack there. Really cool question. Yeah, well, our old, our former uh, CTO, who is is now the CTO at Fortune, shut down our our version of an innovation lab, which was called Three Pillar Labs. And his reasoning was basically, innovation should be something that everybody in your company and or certainly your your engineering or delivery teams is thinking about, not just the providence of you know the select few. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I think there is some validity to that. I'm sure there are also many companies where innovation labs, uh, are, are the right thing for them. We'll talk about Google X shortly. Uh, so, you know, different strokes for different folks, but that, that is also one way of thinking about, you know, whether or not an innovation lab is the right, uh, solution for your company. I agree. I think there's a lot of different use cases where both work and it really, it, it's a culture thing, right? So if you're kind of groomed from the beginning to be able to raise your hand when something isn't right, or this process is too clunky, then I feel like that breeds like, well, what is a better solution? And how can we mitigate this versus, hey, look, this is the roadmap. We agreed we were going to do the project this way. We can't change now. There's money at stake. Let's just keep going. You know, it's like reaching into a, a jar filled with broken glass and being promised that there's a solution at the bottom, but you keep going deeper in and it's just more glass, you know? So <laughs> it's one of those funny things that sometimes I, I think it does take an internal person to get the problem and actually be able to provide the solutions. But when that's not happening, I genuinely believe that an innovation department or an innovation lab is able to kind of kickstart these things. But I think from both sides, there's opportunities. Yeah. So let me ask about a topic that isn't written about in a lot of the existing literature you'll find on innovation, measurement. Are we getting too much into the science of management to expect innovation to be something that is quantifiable or measurable? Yeah, that's so tough. Uh, it's it's fun getting a chance to s actually sit down with some of the startups that we've pushed into some of the larger companies that we work with because every startup has a completely unique experience when it comes to like actually, hey, these are milestones and deadlines. Uh, with some companies, they're able to say, look, we have a, a three-year running time where we can at least at the very end hopefully be able to prove something and we're not gonna we're not gonna hold you to it, but you need to give us something in the way of of feedback. Whereas others are doing weekly stand-ups with the uh, the CTO or the head of the innovation department, which I would say is is pretty tight in terms of constraints. So you know, there's there's a give and take on both sides. My thoughts are, I I've actually seen this internally. Whenever I've had employees, I try to get them to set their own milestones. So what do you think an average amount of time is for this project to be finished? And the idea is, I think people sometimes are a bit more critical of themselves and will actually give you tighter deadlines because they want to show you something or they want to prove that what they're doing actually does work. So I, I think there's a, a number of different schools of thought, but what has been working, uh, it, it really depends on the organization. But from my experience, it's kind of a blend of all these is loose milestones with feedback, but also being able to measure things is incredibly important. Uh, we partner with a, uh, a platform called Hype, 
HYPE that actually does a bit of this as well. And just think of like, uh, I don't know, Basecamp, but for innovation. And it, it, it actually does give people a chance to at least be able to see what's happening from the standpoint of like, are we improving or are we wasting time? That kind of thing. Yeah. And for the the company you referenced that's looking at, you know, one, two, three-year milestones, what are the types of things that that they are kind of tracking to be able to see, okay, is this working or do we need to pivot and do something else? Sure. It, it's just like any other, uh, I don't know, any other startup, right? Yeah. So if they're not actually revenue, uh, generating revenue by month number 12, you know, or, or month number six, yep. if uh, even prior to that, do we have a prototype? So a lot of the hardware uh, startups that we end up meeting. So like, uh, there's a really cool startup, the name escapes me, but they do robotics that are essentially uh, harvesting vertical farms. So robots that are able to uh, pull, uh, you know, plants basically apart and harvest whatever it's strawberries or potatoes, who knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of being able to uh, iterate hardware, man, that's a grind because everything is basically custom made. So any minor setback ends up turning into uh, a complete shift in, in the entire sprint. So I think there's there's a difference there versus software where it's like, great, do we have a minimum viable product? Yes. Is it functional to the, the least... Uh, I don't know, the least mode extent, uh, least most extent where things are actually measurable. Yes. Uh, are we doing customer engagement? Are we, are we actually user testing? Yes. Those are very different from hardware or from even biochem. So it really depends on the industry and it depends on the technology at play. Uh, I've certainly seen some AI startups that have stumbled and the idea is like, look, we, we misinterpreted how many months this was going to take. We thought this was going to be a two-year project. This is probably a three or four-year project given the circumstances, unless we get more resources. And I think that creates a really dynamic conversation saying, look, we need four more NLP folks that are able to actually start getting something in the way of linguistics into this as we continue to try to build off of what is a really complex product. So it, it again, is a difference between the technology, uh, the market, the niche, and the management team that's trying to oversee all of this. Yeah. So I've I've mentioned Google X a time or two. I want to get to them. They do something that's a little curious, at least on its face. They give out bonuses to people for killing projects. What's the rationale or the psychology behind that approach? Yeah, it's one of my favorite to date, uh, and it's a shorter one. It's a TED Talk by this guy who has a fantastic name. His name is Astro Teller. Yes, I've, I've tried to get Astro on the podcast before and have, have been shot down so far. Uh, but uh, Astro, if you're listening, I still want you on. <laughs> he seems like a really cool guy. And the the stuff that he writes in terms of we take the most complex and difficult problems and then try to apply the most radical solutions possible and see what happens. I think that's amazing. But when you are more or less reaching for the stars, uh, you have instances where, hey, stuff just doesn't pan out. It's not going to happen. So Google has this really interesting concept where they say, We are willing to give people a bonus if they've exhausted every possible avenue and they've come into essentially two conclusions. One is the technology is not there and won't be there 
for the foreseeable future, at least given a long enough timeline, hey, we can revisit this. And they've certainly encountered that. There was a great project that uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was essentially turning seawater into a fossil fuel. And the conclusion that they drew was essentially, hey, this is a 25-year project. <laughs> you know, like this is life's work kind of stuff. And in order for us to get even close to this, the amount of expenditure might not necessarily be worth the next 25 years of hustling. So if we shelve it or put it on hold to refocus our efforts, we'll be far better off. That's a really difficult decision to make, especially for people that have been working potentially six months, three years even on a project that they really believe in. And they've done this with other, uh, other projects as well. The concept is very simple. If it is not feasible from, as I was just mentioning, a technology standpoint, then is it feasible from the, the standpoint of a financial one? You know, are we able to at least build this to an extent where it works uh, and then at some point generate something in the way of revenue? And if the last you know, answer to that is, no, nah, it's a nice to have, but no revenue, then it neither needs to, to be looked at again and pivoted or potentially killed just the same. And that's how they actually killed their vertical farming. The idea was they wanted to build these huge structures for vertical farming and essentially be able to put them in every major hub, every major city. But in terms of acquiring the land, the infrastructure, the vertically integrated materials, all of this stuff became really expensive to, to launch this thing on a global scale. So it's been shelved. They've done this with transport as well, finding a lighter than air vehicle that could potentially transport the way that you know big rigs and trucks do these days. It's just not possible given the current materials and also, yeah, the current technology. So they've held off on that one. The whole idea is that reward these people for coming to a solution that says, hey, it's not going to work. And it's not, not going to work forever. It's just not right now. And that's incredibly valuable. There's a company out of here, Maersk, that has run into similar issues where they've created apps that were made for six people. And the amount of development time was essentially two and a half years to make three clients and six users very happy. And at some point, somebody should have stepped in and said, hey, can't we just do this on the website? Like it's mobile friendly. And because they had already had their marching orders, they went through with it. This happens all the time across hundreds of companies, thousands of companies. And I think it's really interesting to say, it's okay to admit that this isn't a viable solution. How do we change this or how do we make the best of this rather than just continuing to, to dig deeper into that jar of glass, you know? Yeah, definitely. It, it reminds me of, we, we do a series of... Uh of breakfast for industry leaders that are that are in our backyard, basically. And I went to a media breakfast recently to be a fly on the wall and, and help with with some of you know, the note taking and things. Um, but um, but one of the attendees there said, in his AOL days, you you could not move up in the product management ranks until you had uh, made the tough call to kill one of the products that you were <laughs> that you were working on and and overseeing. You know, the, the idea being that you have to be able to put what's best for the company uh, ahead of, you know, what you maybe think and, and care deeply about. Uh, so. That's a tough call. I, I mean, I, I get it. But wow, that's a tough call for some people if you're spending years on something to be able to say, uh, this isn't working, you know? Yeah, definitely. Crazy. Uh, so, so if I can put some words into your mouth. Uh, based on our, our exchanges over email before the podcast, you're a believer that innovation is a process that can be managed. 
What do you think are some of the most important things to keep in mind about managing a team if you're someone who's put in charge of managing, let's just call it an innovation portfolio? Yeah, I, I think it, there's so many different areas to go down here, right? So in terms of talent, I, I think that's always been the case. There's There's been instances, and I, I, I've tried to use this metaphor internally uh, on my team to explain when you meet you know, an amazing developer or an amazing marketer. And they're just, there's some people that you meet and it's like, wow, that's a sharp person right there. Like this is, this is just a go-getter. You don't say, well, Hey, really wish we could come together on something, but uh, yeah, we don't, we don't really have any room for you or we're not hiring. It's like, no, 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 screw that. Let's, let's find a way. And I think that type of process of, of thinking about talent shifts the whole dynamic of an organization. I think being able to make do with what you have is, is of course, important, but also bringing in great talent. I also think from the other side, in terms of leadership, man, there's so much that goes into actually saying, look, you know, I, I understand Rome wasn't built in a day. A lot of the projects that are going to be the most profitable uh, revenue-driving things for larger organizations 10 years from now haven't even started. And the idea is they have to start somewhere. You have a lot of people, I, I use this metaphor all the time, uh, and the, the CEO here winces whenever I do. Uh, but I think a lot of these larger companies are like out-of-shape Olympians, right? Like uh, the guy that was on The Biggest Loser, I can't remember his name, but he was an Olympian that won gold in, uh, in the year 2000. He beat the giant Ruski. Uh, and it was one of those things. After a number of years, he kind of let himself go and... Uh, not to put words in his mouth, but I, I'm sure the guy was like, hey, I, I already kind of accomplished everything I needed to accomplish and I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an Olympian, gold medal. And I think you have a lot of big companies that kind of rest on their laurels or, or their previous victories and basically say, look, nobody's going to touch us. We're, we're this organization. We've, we've killed the last you know, 50 years. And I think that's a problem because in the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to continue to see these startup unicorns come into their own and continue to rank upwards on that, that uh, Fortune 500 list. You're also going to see these large companies fall out of favor with the old school techniques of, of doing things the way they, they've always done them. So in terms of, of pushing people to be more innovative and, and more creative and, and how that leadership is approached, it, it's all the things that, that we've kind of gone back and forth here. I, I really think that it, it's, of course, a leadership standard, but it needs to be brought in at an early level in terms of the people that are coming on board. And, and that's also why I've relayed that I, I do think an innovation lab separate from the company so you don't have middle managers coming in going, hey, that guy, like I'm going to pluck him off and bring him onto my team. You know, there's, there's no end point with innovation but also, it's very difficult to put a start point. And I think a lot of people lose sight of that. And that's why it's so difficult for CTOs to kind of generate the momentum to even get something off the ground and something that's actually notable. And, you know, you take a look at some of like the banks that have picked up this, this buzzword, innovation. Because let's be honest, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean anything until you actually have something to show for it. You know, like we all love buzzwords. One of my favorites is growth hacking. You know, a lot of people throw it around. But the concept is, is pretty simple. You know, if, if you're not willing to, to really sacrifice short-term goals for long-term uh, long victories, then you're probably losing out overall. 
So I don't know. It, it, it also reminds me I had, I'm sorry, I'm just going on a rant. I'm into this. Um, I had a very brief conversation with uh, Gary Vaynerchuk over at Arctic 15. And I, I posed kind of the same question to him in terms of what happens uh, in terms of these large companies, you know, over the next number of years, if they're not starting to work with startups or they're not changing the way they're doing business. And he was very flat out as Gary Vaynerchuk is. He's like, they'll die and they should. You know, you need you need to have these people step out of the way. And, and unfortunately, not everybody's along for this trip. And that's the unfortunate part because that's always happened. It, it's great to be the disruptor when you're coming in and everything's new. It sucks being the one being disrupted. And so <laughs> I think we all have to kind of take a look in the mirror and say, am I doing uh, you know, everything I can to evolve and change and stay up on what is kind of coming down the pike? And for some, the answer is, no, I'm good. I'm focused. And for others, it's, yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think there's a lot of improvement to go. So a very long answer to a, a relatively short question. <laughs> no, that's great. And and let me let let me come full circle for people that are out here, for people that are out there listening and, and are interested in uh, checking out valuer.ai that are either in the startup space or more established incumbents and are interested in getting an injection of innovation from you know from from startups, uh, they should go to the website, obviously. Uh, what's the process like for for getting involved? Yeah, I, I mean, come to the website, valuer, V-A-L-U-E-R dot A-I. And I am always looking to partner with new people. We're looking for large companies that are interested in infusing startups. Uh, I mean, I'm also looking for startups that want to be a part of our platform. So yeah, the sky's the limit. Stop by. I also love to connect with everybody on LinkedIn. So if you look up Taylor Ryan, on LinkedIn, there's actually one other Taylor Ryan in Denmark. Uh, I have not met the guy, but I hear he's good people. I have like a couple of mutual connections, but yeah. So feel free to look me up, Taylor Ryan on LinkedIn or valuer.ai uh, online. Okay, awesome. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about leading and managing innovation and all the good stuff that's happening over at valuer.ai. Uh, I hope that uh, if and when you are back in this neck of the woods, uh, you'll reach out and we can do this again. I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me on. This was this was a blast, and uh, I hope I didn't yeah go down it too much. I, I just really dig this stuff. So hopefully, people listening got some value there. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was great value from the CMO of Valuer, uh, no less. <laughs> Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. And we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the innovation engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day 
and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at threepillarglobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.